Antediluvian Revelations, a poetic retelling of the Book of Enoch, the Prophet. Introduction. This is poetry. This book contains poetry, but the content of this poetry is not entirely original. The source material for this poetry comes from a very old book, originally written in an ancient form of Hebrew known as Ethiopic. Humphrey's poeticized retelling of the story of Virgil's Aeneid is a model for this effort. Antediluvian Revelations is a poetical retelling of the story within the Book of Enoch, the Prophet. Humphrey's mid-20th century poetic version of the Aeneid was not a translation of the original text of that epic tale. Humphrey's created a poeticized version of that ancient story in modern English and style from a translation. The poetry in this book is a similar effort to poeticize an ancient epic tale into a modern epic poem. The Book of Enoch the Prophet is similar to many great epics such as the Epic of Gilgamesh, Homer's Odyssey, Virgil's Aeneid, and even the anonymously composed Beowulf. The complete epic foretelling of the first cataclysmic event known to man has always been within this ancient text that was not included in the canonized Holy Bible. There is more to the story within this classical piece of ancient literature than simply being the tale of Noah and the Great Flood. The Book of Enoch the Prophet should have been the first book of the Old Testament up through chapter 6 in Genesis. The story within this ancient book is more than just a prediction of the Great Deluge, and it establishes the earliest record of the monotheistic religion that came to be known as Judaism. Enoch was a prophet, and he predicted many events in history and the end of the world. Rewriting this story in the format of a classical epic poem is an attempt to enable greater interest in the story among modern readers. This ancient story has modern-day relevance because various events and other phenomena the story describes and foretells are occurring today. Antediluvian Revelations is a modern poetic retelling of ancient prophecy, which has recently become very popular among ancient alien theorists and ufologists. Books, motion pictures, and documentaries that claim the Earth has been visited by extraterrestrials for thousands of years are experiencing renewed popularity and interest. The public admission by the United States government that federal taxpayer funds have gone to pay for the research and investigation of unexplainable aerial phenomena has many people everywhere wanting to know the truth about the existence of extraterrestrials and their visitations to Earth. Extraterrestrials Influenced Human Evolution Irrefutable video recordings of close encounters between these unidentified aerial objects and military aircraft have increased public interest in theories about extraterrestrial visitations. The UFO phenomenon is nothing new. There is an increase in popularity of alien encounter stories because there is entirely too much evidence proving that these sightings and experiences are not simply imagined by individuals or groups suffering from mass hysteria, hypnosis, or delusional hallucinations. More of the public than ever before is accepting that extraterrestrial originating spacecraft are real. The prophet Enoch cryptically described extraterrestrial visitations. The resulting poeticized decryption of Enoch's book will confirm early human civilizations recorded the events of extraterrestrial visitations occurring on Earth thousands of years ago. The exact time frame for these ancient close encounters may always be a mystery because of missing or misinterpreted evidence, but archaeological evidence of an ancient comet impact suggests that Enoch may have lived on Earth as much as 14,000 years ago. The Book of Enoch the Prophet is one of many pieces of valid archaeological evidence indicating that extraterrestrials began visiting planet Earth thousands of years ago, and they continue to visit this planet today, according to many witnesses, scientists, and government officials. The content of this book is not science fiction, but it might seem that way to some readers and listeners. A central theme in the literary analysis and poetic retelling of the Enoch story uses theoretical information resulting from research conducted by J. Allen Hynek during his work on the infamous Project Blue Book. Whether or not the research occurred under the auspices of the United States government is not entirely clear. 
However, there are various published documents revealing the findings of a collaborative effort to determine an explanation for the unidentified flying object phenomenon. According to Heineck, extraterrestrial encounters may be defined in five different categories. The two most important categories discussed in this book are close encounters of the fourth kind and close encounters of the fifth kind. There are a total of five different categories of extraterrestrial encounters in Heineck's theoretical explanation, but there is a sixth type of encounter not uncovered in Heineck's theories. Presented in this book is a sixth type of encounter, which is an extraterrestrial intervention event. A close encounter of the sixth kind, CE6, is a globalized event having the purpose to be an intervention in the evolution of an ephemeral species. A future CE6 event is one of the predictions in the book of Enoch the Prophet. Excluding this prediction of a future CE6 event, there have been a total of three CE6 events that have already occurred on Earth up to the present time. The poetry and analytical discussions will reveal the sequence of these four CE6 events in greater detail. Retelling a story found within an ancient book as poetry is a new idea for an old problem of decrypting a very poorly preserved document that has been difficult to understand as a translation into English. An interesting but clearly fictional portrayal of this decryption concept may be found in the movie Alien Code. In that movie, a cryptologist has the challenge of decrypting a message concealed in a mysterious artifact that did not originate on Earth. There are many mysteries within the literary artifact used for this poetry, and very few scholars and writers have endeavored to provide solutions or explanations to them like those that appear within this poetry and related discussions. People of Earth want an explanation for why these sightings of unidentified craft and human encounters with alien beings are increasing, and why there has been so much effort to conceal the truth about the existence of extraterrestrials throughout history. Some explanations for these questions will appear in this book as antediluvian revelations, as the author endeavors to decrypt the ancient text into a modern understanding that becomes epic poetry. The Mysterious Source Document the source document used for this retelling of the Enoch story is an 1883 edition of an English translation from the Ethiopic manuscript. James Bruce, an 18th century Scottish explorer, donated two of three ancient parchment copies he recovered in Assyria to Oxford's Bodleian Library and the Paris Library in 1773. The Archbishop of Cashel, Richard Lawrence, first translated the Ethiopic manuscript into English in 1821, and he published his last edition in 1834. The 1883 edition of Lawrence's translation is a very curious book to choose as a source document because there is a mystery associated with it. Choosing this 1883 version of the translation as a source for the creation of the poetry in this book has caused some curious revelations. The 1883 edition of Lawrence's translation has an unnamed editor. The book is available online in portable data format. An unknown person released a digitally scanned and searchable copy into the public domain on the Internet. One page in the book has a property stamp indicating the Princeton University Library owned it at one time. The mysteriousness about this digital copy is not its free availability, but that the editor is still unknown more than a century later. There is a clue about the identity of the editor on the title page which states that he was the author of The Evolution of Christianity. A search for documents by this title will turn up a book published in 1892 by Lyman Abbott. This late 19th century author was a Congregationalist, Protestant theologian, writer, and editor in the United States, whose lengthy publication list does not include this 1883 edition of the Book of Enoch the Prophet. The title referred to on the book's title page could have been a lecture series, and Abbott created his published book from his notes for the lecture series of the same name that he presented at Boston College. However, there is no reasonable or physical evidence to prove Abbott's book and the reference document on the title page of this mysterious 1883 edition are the same documents. Additionally, there is an editor's footnote within the 1883 edition's introduction referring to page 355. The published version of Lyman Abbott's book by that same title has less than 300 pages. 
a comparison of writing style and prosaic habits between what appears in the introduction to that 1883 edition and that of Abbott's writing, appearing in the 1892 publication and others to his credit, reveals some similarities. However, there is nothing clearly telling when comparing the two documents that can prove Abbott wrote the introduction appearing in the mysterious 1883 edition. In fact, the style and prose quality are quite similar to what may be found in many books by other authors who published their writings during that time. In the 19th century, well-educated men were accustomed to writing in a very similar style, so there were very few differences among many published books and documents. Characteristics such as punctuation, sentence style, grammatical structures, and vocabulary are examples of stylistic components that had very little variation in published documents for that time period. Unlike today's multiplicity of publication standards, publishing in the 19th century followed a more consistently and singularly accepted style for grammar, punctuation, and spelling. Additional Clues in the Mystery The discussion within the introduction of the 1883 book, which references the text of The Evolution of Christianity, does not relate to the content or topic of Lyman Abbott's book. Abbott's book argued about the Darwinian theory of evolution in Christian dogma, but the 1883 introduction discusses historical changes in the doctrine of Catholicism. The two concepts are clearly not the same. Abbott's theme was popular among Protestants in America at the time, but the contrasting theme within the 1883 edition's introduction was popular among Catholics within Oxford Seminary College in a movement known as Tractarianism. The 1883 edition's editor was very knowledgeable about the history of Catholicism, and he never mentions Darwinianism in the course of his argument. The most logical conclusion about the possible content of the referred text on the title page is that it was most likely related to the history of Catholicism and not about human evolution in Christian theology. Additionally, there is no record that Abbott traveled to London for the purpose of publishing a book outside of the United States. He was fully engaged in the task of being an editor of a periodical called Outlook for the duration of time from 1876 through 1922. If Abbott wanted to publish an edition of Lawrence's translation, he would have published it in the United States with impunity. He would not have needed to conceal his identity. According to Wetzel, Lyman Abbott wrote about Protestant Reformation, and there is no mention of this movement anywhere in the text of the 1883 edition's introductory argument. These evidence clarify that Lyman Abbott was not the unknown editor of that 1883 edition of Lawrence's work. The publisher appearing on the book's title page was a well-known publisher in that time, and even had famous clients such as Lord Alfred Tennyson. Research about the publisher's imprint records revealed a curiously significant event. In 1883, there was a fire in the publishing company's facilities that destroyed the records for this particular year and time period. Records surviving that fire were kept in a tin-covered strongbox as archives. The publisher was also a self-proclaimed anti-Semite. It is not likely that Keegan published a book attributed to Jewish heritage as the book's editor, and he would not have had any interest in that sort of literature. The author's theory is that the fire was not so accidental, and it may have been intentionally set to destroy the records of that 1883 book. The supporting argument for this theory is that the eradication of the book and its records might have been attempted in an effort to avoid a scandalous lawsuit with the estate of Richard Lawrence. Additionally, there may have been people who disagreed with the editor's criticisms of Catholic dogma for rejecting Enoch's prophetic book. So an alternate arson theory is also possible. Abbott's interests were not related to the evolution of Catholic doctrine at Oxford Seminary School, and he never mentions Puseyites or Tractarianism in his book. These movements of absolutism were occurring within the Church of England, not in American Protestantism. Fortunately, a copy of the absconded edition made its way across the ocean where it became the stamp property of Princeton University in 1955. But the mysterious book may have secretly existed in the United States for some unknown time before it was marked as Princeton University property. The 1883 edition has a curiously mysterious origin in history, but it seems to have had some supernatural support for its existence. Simply stated, the 1883 edition of Enoch's prophetic work in English translation has survived because there has been a need for it to have survived. Additionally, 
There is evidence within the edition that suggests it exists because it is an example of a cursed book. Other than the mysterious fire in 1883, there are other evidences to consider. There are some differences between Lawrence's original translation and the 1883 edition that have contributed to the author's understanding of how a book can become cursed when edited for the purpose of altering the text to align with the editor's or translator's misguided desires for the text to say something different than the original author intended. The poetic retelling of the Book of Enoch the Prophet is not an edited version of that original translation. It is something more than an edition. It is art with a purpose. An unsolved mystery remains unsolved. The unnamed editor of the 1883 edition of the Book of Enoch the Prophet will forever be unknown. But this mystery is only one of the many problems affecting the content of the original book. The Ethiopic manuscript was very poor quality, and it suffered from missing materials, poorly organized content, and difficult-to-translate textual elements barely readable on the aged parchment. A theory about these problems is that the poorly written and decaying ancient Ethiopic text intentionally concealed the truth that the original document told. There are also concealing techniques in the text, such as the use of words without clear meaning or explanation, words or phrases that mean the opposite of what should be stated as relevant to the topic and content, the use of pronouns without a clear antecedent that cause confusing statements and contradictory information that seems to have been intentionally modified from what may have been in the original version of the story. All of these defects are in addition to the manuscript's decayed condition. There have been many other attempts to translate the ancient manuscript, but the only source material attributed to Enoch for the poetry in this retelling comes from the mysterious 1883 edition of Lawrence's English translation. While the poetic content in this retelling of Enoch's epic story is not limited to derivations from the text in the 1883 edition, there is an intentional effort to use as much of the text from the 1883 edition as reasonably possible. The purpose for using the text from that early edition is to maintain an alignment with the source document, but the resulting poetry does not come entirely from the translation. Classical epic poems incorporated information from many different sources as literary allusions for the purpose of embellishment and decorum. Avant-garde, neoclassicism, and naturalistic style. In keeping with classical tradition, this poetic work based on the Enoch story will also incorporate literary allusions to other classical literature. The original story's narration mostly seems to be from Enoch's point of view. However, the effort in the creative retelling is to present the story from a modern narrator's point of view. A new point of view enables an interpretation of the ancient story with relevant explanations and details not found in the early translations. The results of combining text from the early translation and new interpretive information are very exciting and new literary experiences that become antediluvian revelations, predictions of the future from the time before the great flood which have become the present and a very near future possibility. The ancient Hebrew story differs from other Greek, Old English, and Sumerian epics in one important characteristic. Enoch tells a story that has not ended while all other classical epics are dead tales. The book of Enoch the prophet is a living tale because the end of the story has not yet happened. The great flood was not the end of the story. Some of the prophecies in the book of Enoch the prophet are still pending, the same as some prophecies within the New Testament book of Revelation are still pending. Enoch prophesied that God would destroy the earth with water the first time, and God would destroy the earth with fire on Judgment Day. The prediction of a second destruction of earth has not yet happened, and this prediction appears in several religious texts for various religions. This modern retelling of Enoch's story employs syncretism by combining references to Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and even some references to pagan mythologies. There is a clear intent from these inclusions to reveal a singularly monotheistic religion which cancels out all others. While not entirely the same poetic format as other famous and classical literary works, the methodology used for this work is a free verse format and the poetry will have natural occurrences of meter, rhyme, and alliteration. The author designates this style as naturalistic because the poetry is not unnaturally forced to adhere 
with any traditional poetry format. An example of an epic poem that an author unnaturally forced into existence is Milton's Paradise Lost, which follows strict composure in iambic pentameter. There are indications of a poetic style appearing in the early English translations, and they become more evident with the naturalistic style the author employs. One specific characteristic of poetic decorum that seems obvious in the English translation is the use of repetition or rephrasing for emphasis. Other literary devices appearing in that early translation are the uses of oxymoron, hyperbole, simile, metaphor, and even synecdoche. Finally, the use of cataloging, which appears in many classical epics, also seems evident in the early English translation of this antediluvian tale. Cataloging is a type of literary device a classical poet used to present a listing of people, places, things, and even events. The existence of cataloging in the English translation indicates that the true design of this ancient text should be in poetic format. If there, if there existed an original Greek version of this book, it was most likely in poetic format like other epics written in Greek. The underlying poetic decorum appearing in the English translation suggests that the Ethiopic manuscript was at least an imitation of Greek poetical style and the scribe who wrote the Ethiopic copies may have been attempting to write the first poetic version of the story based upon his classical Greek education. Hidden Curses in Ancient Texts Other than the identified literary devices employed by an early duplicating scribe who may have endeavored to recreate the story in Ethiopic based upon Greek principles of poetic style, there is the unusual characteristic of spells within the book which make it unique. There is a logical explanation for these uncanny spells within or upon the 1883 edition of the translation. Having a mysteriously unidentifiable editor is only one small piece of the mysterious puzzle that is this ancient book. There is no doubt that many texts originating in ancient times have had several alterations made to them over the years. The Holy Bible is one such document that has been edited and modified throughout its history to the extent that present-day versions are most likely polluted with extreme inaccuracies and fraudulence. A scribe who endeavored to make a copy of the original prophetic text could have created a copy with the intent to alter its original content for the purpose of creating a cursed version of the book. The argument here does, in fact, state that the concept of inerrancy, as it relates to the Holy Bible, is a fraudulent and heretical ideology. Mankind for the last 2,000 years has altered and cursed the Holy Bible with fraudulence and editorialization. Revising an ancient book to alter its original text has the result of causing that book to be cursed. The Holy Bible is an example of a cursed book because of intentional editorialization that has altered it to have fraudulent content more frequently found in the New Testament than in the Old Testament. Despite there being specific warnings appearing in the text of the book about not editing the Holy Bible, people have done it anyway, and it began happening from the time of its initial canonization. The scribe who created the Ethiopic manuscripts may have been attempting to protect the book's content from editorialization by writing multiple spells hidden within the text. The protection of these curses had the intent to cause harm to the reader who was not a righteous person nor allowed to know the secrets within the book. The author's poetic retelling alters the spells hidden within the source document so they do not cause any serious harm to the reader. The poetry format further enables an undoing of the hidden spells by bluntly exposing them with added narration. The three uncanny spells hidden within the original text may cause the maledictions of sleeplessness, confusion, and loss of identity. There is a similarity in these curses to those found at ancient pyramids, tombs, graves, and burial mounds. The writing of curses into ancient documents was a fairly common practice thousands of years ago, but the effort had its basis in pagan occultism and unfounded superstition. The three psycholinguistic spells discovered in the Book of Enoch, the prophet, appear mostly in Part 2, which covers the parables of Enoch, but there is subtle evidence of their creation throughout the book. Lawrence's English translation unwittingly activated these spells for modern readers of English. However, this poetic retelling uses corrective measures to break the spells. A well-trained mind in literary analysis and linguistics has the capability to detect and decrypt these intentionally designed 
linguistic manipulations. The spells are not truly supernatural. There is no mystical power to these spells, and the ancient manuscript is not a grimoire. The supposed supernatural effect of these spells is actually a psycholinguistic phenomenon caused by the linguistic manipulations of textual elements that can cause a physiologically manifested illness such as the malediction of sleeplessness. In other words, the intent of the hypnotic suggestions hidden in the text is to subliminally manipulate the reader's thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. Any persons having a true spiritual faith in God and reading the early English translations are more susceptible to the effects of these spells than non-believers. The spells are then more understandably the powers of psychologically manipulating the readers or listeners with words and phrases that appeal to their subconscious convictions and profound beliefs. More information about this phenomenon will appear in later summary discussions. Read to Compare Reading the 1883 edition along with this retelling might be a choice for the reader to make in some future time, but it might not be enjoyable to attempt reading two books at the same time. This poetic version will quite often differ greatly from the 1883 text, and it will present prophetically enhanced material never before seen or read in other translations of the ancient manuscripts. Some critics of literature might wish to insinuate that this work is an act of plagiarism. However, there is no effort here to claim the work is an entirely original invention of the author. The poetry is a combination of the translated text from a clearly identified source document and newly revealed prophetic materials. The truth about the source material for this work has been stated here, and the source document is more than 150 years old. This creative work is not a simple translation of the Ethiopic manuscript into English. The author uses the text of an ancient book that has no valid copyright because the publisher has no records authorizing the production of someone else's published work. The only version of Lawrence's translation that may be more authoritative than the one used for this work is the original printing of his 1821 edition, which is a very rare book and would be 200 years old today. The development of this poetic retelling required a study of many books, films, documents, and published articles. There will be a list of sources at the end of this text for the reader's benefit. The author is not a theologian whose mind has been contaminated with the lies perpetuated by instruction at a seminary college of any particular religious order. The author incorporates within this poeticized retelling of ancient prophecy the modern prophetic doctrine of the eternal truth, referenced in the New Testament book of Revelation, chapter 14. This doctrine is known to leaders among many different Christian denominations after it initially appeared within a prophecy titled The Little Book. Other than this enhanced content, there is also reorganization of the original material. Principles of Reorganization The arrangement of the content within the poem does not precisely mirror the translation of the Ethiopic manuscript. The reason for this reorganization is that the assembly of the Ethiopic manuscript used for the early English translation is completely wrong. The causes of this defect may have been that the loose pages were not put together correctly when manually copied, and an unknown editor used Roman numerals in an attempt to reorganize the Ethiopic copy to suit his interpretation. The story makes very little sense as it appears in Lawrence's translation because of this incorrect assembling of the manuscript pages. Continuing to organize this modern poetry with Roman numerals was not sensible. The poetic retelling reorganizes the content for improved understandability, but there is no claim that the result is a completely accurate reproduction of the original document's arrangement. The segmentation of the poem into five parts follows widely accepted interpretations of the source document. The poetic retelling maintains division of the material into five distinct parts the same as other scholars have identified. The poetry appears divided as cantos, and each canto has subsegments numbering no more than twelve. One reason for this segmentation is that some materials within a canto fit much better in this poetic retelling as a sensible narrative when rearranged as subsegments. The author does not apply the organization of Lawrence's translation in the poetry. 
Segmenting the cantos into smaller songs enables better control of the narrative style employed in the poetry. The segmentation enables the creation of suspenseful, natural pauses that help to hold the reader's interest and improve understanding of the material with added narrative injects throughout the work. A narrative inject is a new term referring to the addition of narrative information to enhance the original story and make it more understandable. Rearranging materials which seem orphaned or unrelated to content where they appear in the translated text enables improved sensibility for the content overall. There is a better flow of events in this reorganization and format with the inclusion of additional explanatory details not present in the vague and choppy translation. Admittedly, the sequence of events as they appear in the poem are not chronologically accurate. However, a later summary discussion in this book will present the author's best explanation of the chronological sequence of events. It is a matter of artistic consideration not to reveal this information until later in the book. The Purpose of This Book At the end of his book, Enoch presents a caution to anyone who would attempt to do as appears here and in other translations when he writes, Now will I point out a mystery. Many sinners shall turn and transgress against the word of uprightness. They shall speak evil things. They shall utter falsehood, execute great undertakings, and compose books in their own words. But when they shall write all my words correctly in their own languages, they shall neither change or diminish them, but shall write them all correctly, all which from the first I have uttered concerning them. This prophecy makes it known that the purpose of any translation or new version of Enoch's words in another language should be to tell the truth about what happened to him as he intended. While the truth within Enoch's story is not diminished or changed in this retelling, it is most definitely enhanced by being made more understandable to modern English language readers, which is what Enoch really wanted to happen. Enoch prophesied that future writers would translate his words into other languages, and this prophecy is one example of many antediluvian revelations. There is no evil spoken or falsehoods uttered in this poem about Enoch and what he witnessed those many millennia in the past. The purpose has been to tell the truth of his experience because the time has come to know it. Retelling a story within the book of Enoch the prophet as modern poetry has the benefit of being edifying, inspirational, educational, and spiritually gratifying. For people who think they might have been abducted by aliens, saw a UFO, or just want to understand what all of these ancient astronaut theories are all about, antediluvian revelations will deliver an exciting and thrilling series of predictions made known to mankind from the time before the Great Flood. Some readers will be angered by what this book says because they will find themselves guilty of the sins Enoch says will cause the Holy Spirit to reject them on Judgment Day. Readers and listeners can still make a choice to repent of their sins before that day. A Forgotten Theology the original theology of Enoch, as it appears in the early English translations, suggests that God has the masculine gender because there are only masculine pronouns referencing this entity in the translation as well as in most documents about a supreme being in Judaism. For the sake of deterring any argument which must erroneously insist God has a gender, the use of a masculine pronoun is simply a writing standard. It is the author's understanding that God Almighty is not gender-specific as either male or female. God is a completely spiritual entity, extraterrestrial in origin, and eternal. God is a neutral, non-gendered existence. Only ephemeral beings with corporeal forms have a need for gender. Human beings, insisting that God has a gender, suffer from delusional misunderstanding because of infantile psychology and a lack of intellectual development. Theological doctrines created in the past with limited and infantile intellectual development are erroneous. This statement also explains why all theologies are false in their entirety when they claim God is a male, that God became a man in the flesh, that there is a female God or some other female persona who procreates by the imaginary power of God's immaculate conception. All the gender in God as a human being argument is pagan nonsense derived from ignorance, which will become more profoundly proven in the text of Antediluvian Revelations. Almighty God does not make babies in a human female. 
virgin or otherwise, that will be his son, because this implies a multiplicity of God, and this ideology is polytheistic paganism. The story of Enoch begins in the middle of things, Medius race, the same as most classical epics begin. While there are both good and evil forces in this epic poem, there is only one eternal, extraterrestrial, supreme being. The poem begins with an initial narrative inject to introduce the characters, the setting, and the conflict, which are the elemental components of any epic story. This concludes this episode of Antediluvian Revelations, a poetic retelling of the Book of Enoch, the Prophet. Be sure to subscribe or follow for notifications of new releases. Thank you for listening. I am Michael.